The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, I promise you're absolutely in the right place. Today's buzz, you know... I've never said that before. You know, you're in the know. You know something. Let's get started. What is she talking about? Okay. As technology makes the global marketplace increasingly more accessible, we're all connected. We're all just a soundbite, a nanosecond away. Companies of all sizes everywhere have to effectively distribute this new knowledge across the entire organization. No more silos. Why is this so important? Well, establishing what we call effective knowledge networks, and remember that term, knowledge networks, it will enable businesses to cross physical and virtual boundaries, which you all want to do. It will enable you to innovate and collaborate at scale. That is the goal as you grow. And maybe even the most important part, the underpinning of all business, it will enable you to maintain your human relationships among your colleagues who work virtually. You can't see them in person, but where are they? Who are they? How do we connect and collaborate? But wait just a second. Knowledge networks. The research is limited on how to set one up, how to manage it, and how to make it successful. Wouldn't you like to know if this is such a great thing, such a wonderful innovation that can transform your business, wouldn't you like to know what a successful knowledge network looks like and how it could have a positive impact, a great ripple effect for your business? Of course the answer is Yes. Well, we've assembled a wonderful panel today of three experts who are going to help us figure this out and give you some of the knowledge you need so that you know how to establish a knowledge network. Let me get started. First up on the panel, I'm pleased to welcome Cynthia G. G-E-E. She's a partner within the Global Business Services Consulting Practice at IBM, and Cynthia is calling us all the way from Australia. It's really dark there right now, but she's going to be a bright, sparkling light on our panel. And Cynthia sent me the following quote from a 1918 war slogan. The quote will sound familiar. Forget where it's from. It's not what you know. It's who you know. Cynthia G., welcome. How are you today? Thanks, Bonnie, and thanks for having me um, on the show today. I'm, I'm well, thanks. Good. Talk to me. So Interesting I, quote. You know, I chose, yeah, well, I, I chose this quote. I, I knew it would be, you know, highly familiar to a lot of people. And when I researched the quote, I, I actually found it quite funny that we couldn't actually find um, a specific person to attribute the quote to. There are a lot of people since the early 1900s 
that have used the quotes. Um, Sun Tzu used a version of it in The Art of War. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. It's, it's quite deep. Um, and Hollywood, right? You know, Hollywood has added in their version of this, stating in Hollywood it's not what you know but who you know. Um, you know, and the, the one thing I think, you know, that struck me, and it's the reason why I, I wanted it to be part of, of, of my way of opening today is, is that I think all in all, you know, whether the saying kind of traditionally evokes these thoughts about nepotism and not about how talented you are, but who you know, I, I think in this digital age, the modern take on this saying is that highly productive employees, um, have it both ways. They need to have it both ways about their talent, about what they know, as well as who they know. And um, as you've um, introduced us already, Bonnie, we'll be talking about these topics um, in terms of how organizations can truly enable these networks, these knowledge networks that um, that truly play the strengths and the needs of our um, our new knowledge workers today. So I'm really excited to be able to be a participant today. And we're delighted to have you. Cynthia, let me just clarify something before I introduce our second panelist. It dawned on me while you were speaking that we all have what I call the e-Rolodex. It used to be something round that sat on a desk on a little stand (laughs) with lots of index cards and lots of business cards stapled to or scotch taped to cards. And you just flip through this thing. Maybe it had an alphabet tab on it. And you said, oh, I know that guy. What was his name? And he, and he was somebody, and his name began with an L, and you start your physical search. So today we have address books, and we have emails from I don't know how many. Anybody whose letter ever started with anything you ever typed will come up eventually if you just hit that letter, right? And you might end up with the wrong person. Is yeah. that the same thing as a knowledge network, Cynthia, where you have this vast, what I call e-Rolodex of email addresses, or we're talking about something much deeper? Look, I actually think it does. It starts with that. At the core of it, who you know has attributes associated with that person, whether it starts with their email address, which is quite important in terms of finding them, so that the attribute of how you find a person, whether that be their email address, their Twitter handle, their um, LinkedIn profile, their Facebook profile, their job role within an organization. Um, those are that's a that's a key part of the attribute of what it means, and so that is quite core to what's needed in a knowledge network, along with the ability. I think, and this is the I think one of the the key special pieces that are happening in in this world today with the advent of and uh, the convergence of social networking and analytics is really then being able to find these people at the, at the point in time that you need them in the context that you need them. So, for instance, knowing that my friend over there, you know, Bonnie in, in Oregon has an email address of Bonnie, you know, at SAP.com, also happens to have in her background some great experience in radio show hosting, um, which might, might be the other way that I search through my Rolodex really quickly is by searching on, on that key attribute about um, a talent she has in her background. Thank you. And the reference to Oregon is that I did live in Eugene, and you and I had a lovely chat on our prep call about a week ago about people we know in common and some uh, Northwest history. We'll leave that one for another conversation. Cynthia, thank you for indulging my question. I appreciate it. And I just was asking off the top. I'm glad that it was a, a good question. Thank you. Let me introduce our second panelist. It's Michael Gretzko. He's a principal in the U.S. Human Capital Consulting Practice at Deloitte. And here is the quote from Rumi, the 13th century Persian poet, 
jurist, Islamic scholar, theologian, and Sufi mystic. And here's the quote. You seek knowledge from books. What a shame. You are an ocean of knowledge hidden in a dewdrop. Michael, that's such a beautiful quote. And I looked it up, and there are a couple of variations, but I stuck with your variation because I love it. Michael Gretzko, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing great, and thanks. And and I appreciate that uh, you love the quote as well. For me, you know, Rumi is one of my favorite poets, and like most great writers, I think uh, his insights transcend time. Um, and this was written many, many years ago, but it applies even to our topic today, which is about how we create um, knowledge networks and what they mean for the pace of business um, in, in our current time, in our time and age. Uh, what, I, what I love most about this quote and what I think is really inspirational as we, we step into this topic is this concept that all of us have knowledge within us that um, we have a responsibility to share. And um, as we talk about knowledge networks, one of my my views of it is that it brings with it a responsibility that we all contribute what we know. That we are specialists and we are experts on particular topics and we need to contribute that knowledge for the greater good, this concept that we are but a drop in an ocean. And if we extend the analogy, uh, knowledge networks are about the ocean. How do we connect those drops such that we create that ocean of knowledge um, and allow others to uh, leverage what we all know and what we what we bring to the table as experts and as human beings that, that have knowledge and thoughts and actions. Thank you, Michael. Very profound. Uh, by the way, I wanted to Google your quote, and I discovered <clears throat> there's a handle called Rumi Quotes. I don't know if you found that online, but uh, very, very interesting, very shareable. The, the idea that you're protecting your job. Michael, is that a thing of the past where people were, uh, what do we call it, uh, job security? You didn't want to share what you know. You wanted to be the specialist, the only one, the one with that unique knowledge, and only upon certain invitations or the boss saying, okay, write a report, you're sharing it with the team, would you give up the key to that knowledge? Is that a thing of the past in terms of, well, you're in human capital consulting practice. Is that a new mantra in human capitals when you come into the company, everything you and you have to share? I think, unfortunately, it is not a practice of the past. I still think we see that behavior in, in many organizations, but I do believe it is a practice that is no longer contributing to value, and it's a practice that needs to go away. And I think what many organizations, and what we even see, you know, if you look on social media, is this concept that by doing lots of sharing, you're rewarded. Um, you see things like Blogs that are heavily liked and heavily enjoyed and heavily shared generate revenue and income and notoriety for those authors. So there's this alignment of incentives between sharing and and what comes back as a result of that sharing. Mm -hmm. I think great knowledge networks will promote that kind of sharing to encourage that kind of behavior and recognize that you've got a brand to create through that process of sharing. And protecting information is, frankly, one of the fastest ways to make yourself irrelevant, especially as that knowledge uh, changes at a much different pace. It's much more dynamic than it used to be. Interesting. I love the introduction of the word dynamic. I think that's that's what we're seeking here is that dynamic sharing. Uh, yeah, a lot more to talk about. Michael Gretzko, welcome. Delighted to have you. And a shout-out to whoever is tweeting at Deloitte SAP. Uh, we have such a fan club at Deloitte, and they send us such wonderful speakers, so thank you. And let me introduce our third panelist. She is Jennifer Engelhart, a partner at IBM and the North American leader for the Transformation Center for Excellence at IBM. And Jennifer has sent me a wonderful quote 
from Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who's a German writer, and in case you're scratching your head, he wrote, well, his magnum opus is considered to be the two-part drama Faust. If you're too young to know this, look up Goethe, G-O-E-T-H-E, and look up Faust, F-A-U-S-T, and you'll discover a new world. Uh, Here's the quote Jennifer sent. Knowing is not enough. We must apply. Willing is not enough. We must do. Jennifer, also at IBM, we have Cynthia G. and Jennifer, both from IBM, and welcoming big shout-out to IBM for sending us two very smart experts today. Jennifer, welcome to the panel. How are you today? Good, Bonnie. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Talk to me about this very good, interesting quote, so appropriate for us today. Well, for me, knowledge is, is, is about connections, and it's connecting not just to improve our businesses, but also in, to improve our quality of life. I'll share just a quick story, a tragic story. A, a dear friend of mine and a colleague at IBM uh, passed away very suddenly from ALS last year, and it got me thinking about um, patients and quality of life, especially those patients who, have, who may have a rare disease or um, who just need a support network. And there's this great um, support network data collection, I don't even know what you, how you would categorize it, called Patients Like Me Online. And yes. basically what it does is it allows patients to share their experiences with with other patients who have the same disease or the same symptoms. And it does two things. One, it gives them a support network. And two, it allows, um, it allows that data is then shared with pharmaceutical companies to accelerate research. So the sharing of knowledge in this capacity really is about improving quality of life for the patients <clears throat> and also improving lives for those who are suffering from these different conditions. So Knowledge for me, there are many different ways that knowledge can improve not just our quality of life, but also our businesses. It can help workers connect to find better ways, you know, to, to run their supply chain, to, to run their back office, to um, get the best uh, value out of their analytics and so on. So Knowledge Networks is, is definitely an exciting new trend, and the technology platform is finally catching up to help support this. Thank you, Jennifer. What an interesting coincidence. We just had on, on one of our shows last week, somebody else mentioned patientslikeme.com. So as you were saying it, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I just remembered I had it tabbed on my, uh, on, on my browser, and there it was. Very, very interesting. Yes, sad. The reason for it is sad, but the answer is it's a good thing to share that knowledge. Thank you for the good, good example, and we have a lot more coming from you as well. Now, let's circle back to Cynthia G. Cynthia, you're somewhere in Australia. It's midnight. I asked you before the call, before we started, what the weather was. You said you couldn't tell. It was just dark outside. But let me ask you, what are you drinking right now to keep you awake for the show and or what do you plan to drink after the show and where exactly are you in Australia? So we're ready for our segment called What's in Your Cup today. Cynthia G, talk to me. You bet. So it is midnight here in Sydney. I'm in Sydney, Australia. Um, That means it is pitch dark here. It is winter, uh, going into winter here in the southern hemisphere. So it does mean that it's probably just around 8 or 9 degrees Celsius here. So that's kind of borderline 40, 45 degrees Fahrenheit, I think, if I've done the conversion right. At, at any rate, what that means is that before this call, what I had was a cup of Earl Grey tea because I was uh, a little bit cold <laughs> coming up to my office this evening. And now I've got a glass of water in front of me just to uh, ensure that my voice stays clear and that uh, you know I can uh, stay wide awake here with my nice cold glass of water in front of me. 
You're doing great. Thank you so much, Cynthia. You're a real trooper. Once in a while, we have guests from any time zone, anywhere in the world, and uh, I, I appreciate the fact that you're willing to be with us at this late hour. So thank you, and I hope you're I hope you're warm when you want to be warm and cold when you want to be cold. There you go. Michael Gretzko, what are you drinking right now, or what do you plan to drink after the show? Yeah, so I find myself in Michigan. I'm working with a client here, and one of the things we're focused on today is we've taken some time out of our project schedule to focus on this concept of corporate athlete. So I've got a fruit smoothie with almond milk because I try not to drink dairy. And part of what we're, we're trying to focus on is this intersection of our physical health and well-being with our mental health and well-being and, and how we can help bring uh, the best version of ourselves to work each day and how having a strong physical core uh, helps you bring a strong mental core. So I'm drinking that smoothie with the hopes that it will start me on the journey towards that strong physical core to allow me to do better at work. Well, you have inspired me already. I'm going to have something healthy to drink after the show. What's in the smoothie? Give us a recipe, Michael. This one's very simple. This is mango, strawberries, and blueberries with mm. almond milk and some ice. And if I was at home, I would have put some kale in it, but where I am, I don't have any kale. So just the fruit and milk. Okay, I, I invented my own new type of smoothie last week. A little bit of I had a little bit of cranberry juice left in the bottle, and I added a little bit of one percent milk and an ice cube and half a banana and a little. I think I had a couple of uh, strawberries in the refrigerator, and I got to tell you, it was amazingly delicious. Oh, I put a drop of agave syrup. Forgive me, I like mine sweet, but it was really good. So that's in my new recipe list. Thank you, Michael, and let's turn to Jennifer Engelhart. Inspire me, Jennifer. What are you drinking? I'm drinking a tall, cold glass of lemon seltzer water. I, um, my sister and I, about three months ago, decided it would be a good idea to run a half marathon. So um, I trained. I did my long run for 10 miles this weekend, and we've got 11 days to go. So and it's also a three-city week for me between Salt Lake City, Chicago, and my hometown of D.C. So staying hydrated is my top priority right now. Wow, I'm very impressed. Lemon seltzer water. Do you take it cold right out of the bottle, let it go to room temperature, use a straw? Talk to me a little bit about how you how you imbibe this. I don't like it too cold because uh, it gives me a headache. So I like to, mm-hmm. room temperature is pretty good for me, especially after a long run. But um, anything that's, I like effervescent, anything to wake me up is good for me. Sounds very refreshing. Thank you for sharing, and good luck with your marathon. That sounds exciting. We have such a healthy panel today. I'm, I, I'm not joining you on that on that part of the spectrum, but I'm sure impressed. I'm talking today with Cynthia G., Michael Gretzko, Jennifer Engelhart, three very, very smart people. And our, Well, we need smart people because our topic today is knowledge networks. Stick around. You're going to learn a lot more about how they will help your business cross physical and virtual boundaries, help you innovate and collaborate at scale and keep those human relationships in a good place no matter where in the world and how virtually people are working. I'm Bonnie D. Graham and I plan to be after the break. You're listening to Transforming Your Business with Game Changers Radio. If you're keeping track, this is episode number nine. A shout out to SAP sponsor Becky Weber and to Wilson Zhu who puts together the most interesting panels and the greatest topics for us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Wilson. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Cynthia G. has the honors of helping me start off the round table 30 minutes non-stop so put your seat belts on wherever you are we'll be right back don't even think of touching that mouse that app that dial Brad out
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We are witnessing a monumental shift in the way work and business are done. Leaders are looking to radically simplify their organizations while simultaneously engaging and empowering employees to achieve more. These leaders are also seeking to leverage exciting innovations born from interactions between people, businesses, and things in our newly responsive and intelligent, hyper-connected, networked global economy. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how leaders and their teams can help shape the future of change. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show using Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to transforming your business with Game Changers. Yes, we're transforming your business with something called Knowledge Networks. You may already have one and not even know it. You may be envious after listening to the show that you don't think you have one, but we'll help you figure out what to do about it. Our panelists today are Cynthia G. at IBM, Michael Gretzko at Deloitte, and Jennifer Engelhardt also at IBM. And let's see, Cynthia G. has kindly agreed well, actually, I nominated her to help me start off the roundtable. <laughs> Cynthia sent me the following research. She says, according to a 2012 McKinsey report, employees spend 1.8 hours every day, do the math, that's 9.3 hours a week on average, searching for and gathering information. And put a different way, businesses hire five employees, but only four show up to work. The fifth is off searching, searching, searching for answers, but not contributing any value. I think there's a danger point in here. Cynthia G., why don't you expand this for us, please? Go ahead. Yeah, you bet. Like, I, I found this, uh, you actually have to admit, when I saw the 1.8 hours per day, I actually questioned whether or not it's actually more than that now <laughs> in mm-hmm. the current day and age. And that's because I think in this digital age that we're in, we create more data each week than was created in the last half century. I mean, we, we generate so much data, half a billion tweets per day, we manage our networks to achieve a higher clout score um, because a clout score can mean the difference between getting hired or not. The strength of, of your network and the ability to find who and what you need at the point of, in time that you need it is, is I, I would propose, is not so much a matter of being socially connected or popular, but I think mm-hmm. in today's workplace, in today's world, it's a, it's a matter of survival. And I think, as referenced earlier on the call, I think both from a personal and a professional um, perspective. So um, along those same lines, I think that as work and life, um, the line between that, uh, those two worlds is, is almost essentially gone or at least extremely fuzzy, um, we have these expectations about being able to conduct ourselves in the workplace similar to how we would expect instantaneous feedback like we do when we put a topic out to our Twitter followers and get instantaneous feedback from not just our followers but thousands of happy-to-help interested followers who want to contribute. Um, we expect this um, in our personal lives because of the networks that we're on. So when we turn to our, our workplace, um, 
you know, the expectations on our organization and, and on our technology inside of our organizations and on our culture um, is, is, is misaligned, right, with, with what is actually happening in, in our workplaces today. And this is, this is something that, you know, I tackle today in my role as the global leader for learning um, services for IBM. You know, one of the things that I see quite often um, when I work with organizations, particularly large organizations where decentralization is, is quite common and, and, and is uh, something that happens uh, quite organically over time with a lot of these large organizations. And what happens there is information is often siloed. It's packed into different business segments. It's quite literally physically <laughs> um, sitting on someone's hard drive. Um, it may even be cultural in terms of the barriers that prevent the sharing of this, of this information, sometimes driven by uh, the need to protect one's job or turf. Other times, sometimes, you know, I've, I've actually was, uh, was working with a client in the pharmaceutical um, uh, industry, and, and one of the interesting points that that client made to me was that there were legal and regulatory implications of sharing information freely in the organization. So, you know, there are lots of different reasons why this is still a, a tough uh, problem to solve um, in today's time, despite the amount of volunteered information and, and, and people who are, 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 are flocking to these social networks in their personal lives. Um, so I just find that this whole idea of sharing knowledge um, and the ability to find it, because I, I think that, you know, I would purport that there, as, as was said earlier, a huge ocean of knowledge that we create, some of which we, we don't do uh, purposefully, <laughs> others we, mm -hmm. we absolutely are conscientious contributors to that ocean um, as, as uh, you know, as an employee, but also as a consultant who works with lots of clients, I think one of the number one challenges I come across time and time again is how do you make sense of it all? How do you simply and elegantly um, enable um, individuals to find who they need and what they need um, at the time of need? And, and I think that um, is really the challenge of the day. And, and there are some fantastic solutions out there that are starting to make their way into the corporate environment, um, and those solutions tend to have this wonderful balance of cultural and change management, um, analytics that help to make data-driven decisions about how you set up these social net these knowledge networks and how you use them for business needs. So, mm -hmm. proving that case uh, amongst a lot of the potential non-believers out there who think that uh, engaging in this kind of uh, networking isn't always a productive use of, of time on the job. Um, and I think providing the right medium. So, again, there, there's, there's no shortage of software and technology that exists out there that make it possible to share information in a digital manner. Um, but certainly um, I think having, um, you know, a really good change in cultural change strategy in place as well as the right level of evidence and data that allow you to make the case um, and prove the points of, of why this is important are, are quite key, I think, um, to solving this challenge. 
Thank you, Cynthia. I want to mention a little bit of something from your background here, actually an important uh, fact about Cynthia. She was awarded a U.S. patent in 2011 for developing a cloud-based learner support application and business process that leverages data from multiple learning systems. And I'll just get right to the point here. The application currently supports 200,000 U.S. Army soldiers and civilians who are engaged in distance learning. Talk about sharing information. Thank you, Cynthia. Good to hear all of that. Michael Gretzko, you've been waiting patiently in the wings. Talk to me about what Cynthia introduced on our table right now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great start to our conversation, and I fundamentally agree with, you know, the sort of assessment of where we are. You know, I'll pick sort of two points maybe to, to share some more thinking on. Um, the first is around, you know, what's created this demand around connecting with individuals and needing to find knowledge. I think as we look at uh, sort of macroeconomic factors, um, we're seeing this advancement of the preponderance of knowledge work, uh, even areas that historically were not about knowledge work. You know, take manufacturing, for example. The manufacturing industry is being fundamentally transformed as production lines uh, start to embrace the use of robotics, and you've got engineers and software engineers that are running those lines where they, in the past, perhaps were predominantly about uh, physical labor. And so it's just created this massive demand um, in, in new areas, areas that typically did not rely on demand. And then you've got this fact that with, uh, I mentioned the word dynamic earlier in our introduction, you know, the marketplace is mm-hmm. so dynamic and the economy is so dynamic. I think we're finding many organizations are needing to assemble teams that are highly cross-functional in nature, that assemble and disassemble around specific issues or initiatives um, in a much more agile, much more um, quickly forming and quickly disbanding format, such at the time that there is in these projects and in the timelines to come together and, and figure out who knows about a particular topic and do your background knowledge and get up to speed has been significantly compressed. And as a result, it just puts significant um, emphasis on this need to quickly find the information, figure out who knows it, um, and there's more demand because of this increased adoption of of knowledge workers and knowledge management is a, is a changing force in, in the nature of work. So I think we're going to continue to see a, a massive increase in demand. Um, one, one of the, the topics that we touched on you know, in this first part of the conversation is around you know, how do you go find the people that know the knowledge? And I, I think that's one of the most um, interesting parts of this discussion is how we create, if you will, a taxonomy of knowledge. Um, and as I think back in history, you know, the the card catalog in a library was a mm-hmm. massive step forward in trying to put a rigorous structure around our knowledge. And that worked really well when we could categorize information in books and tag them and say, okay, well, this book is about, uh, you know, leisure, about gardening, and, and be able to go find it. And, and then you fast forward to the you know, infamous Google algorithm, which said, well, people will vote with their feet. Um, to find those topics that are most relevant and let's leverage the power of, of the, the people, the power of people searching. I think there's an interesting question around, you know, how do you do that in, a, in an environment like an organization where um, you may not know that a person knows something individual or you may, mm-hmm. may rely on that individual to self-identify that they know something. And, and how do we take um, that construct and, and make that information accessible and create, if you will, that that Google or that navigation map, that card catalog of all that information that's resident within the organization. And, you know, hypothesis might be that organizations start to organize themselves not just around organizational structures, meaning I report to this manager or, or cost center structures, my costs roll up 
to this cost or, or even the business or product I'm part of, but about what I know. And those organizational structures may transcend some of those other organizational structures I talked about, but it may be about I know a lot about product development or I know a lot about mm-hmm. this particular um, protein. And I think we're starting to see some organizations embrace those kind of constructs in their organizations, and we'll, we'll see where that goes from there. Thank you very much, Michael. All good points. Jennifer Engelhardt, I want to get you in on this conversation. Thoughts on what your two co-panelists have shared so far? You know, I've spent a lot of time in airports this week, and and I was noticing yesterday running through O'Hare that you cannot walk through an an airport without being assaulted by the power of analytics and how it can transform your business. And, you know, analytics is the hot topic everywhere. And if, if if we go back to the example of patients like me, and the concept, because it really is a sea change in this whole concept of kind of the democratization of, of healthcare. So typically when you talk about healthcare, the common going in theme is around privacy. So this concept of having patients share their data willingly for the purposes of accelerating research and improving quality of life and providing a support network to fellow patients who have, this, who have similar conditions that really is a, is a departure from the more traditional view of data in the healthcare space. And, you know, when I take that and look at that in the context of business, we're, we're, our companies today are spending so much effort and, and money and talent and resources putting in these new analytic systems. But the fact of the matter is, according to Gardner, less than 30% of potential users of organizations' analytics tools uh, there's less than 30% of users who actually really fully adopt these new reporting and analytics capabilities. So we're spending all these dollars setting them up, but because analytics is not part necessarily part of a standard trans- transactional process like procure to pay, you know, cut the PO, receive the goods, pay the invoice, and it's kind of a uh, on the, maybe um, it's on the sidelines in the sense that it's, it's used to support um, better better decision-making, but it's not core to transactional processing. So getting adoption of analytics is, is tougher. So using building knowledge networks where we shift our focus from just error resolution of core transactional processes to really helping users implement, share best practices and implement best practices. In other words, this reporting capability can really help you determine what your, um, what your routing should be to this particular distribution center. Those are the shifts that are really going to help businesses um, build competitive advantage. So we really have to build these knowledge networks to, to shift away from just transactional processing to using analytics as a tool to create knowledge workers. Thank you, Jennifer. Cynthia, this was your topic you opened with. You want to comment on what Michael and Jennifer have added, please? Yeah, look, I think that, at the, you know, we, we had the, that interesting um, imagery at the beginning that's just, it's just so, um, it's actually a great, it's a great sort of lead into what I wanted to say that, I, that kind of touches on the, the, the previous comments here is that, you know, when we look back on, on the days of using our Rolodexes or measuring how much we've been able to connect and know by how many business cards fall out of your briefcase, you know, when you come back from a conference or something. Mm-hmm. Um, at any rate, all of those things, you know, the Rolodex, the business card, the, um, you know, even a single email address, those are all kind of uh, one-dimensional, if you will, as, you know, aspects about what a person is. And, and that there was this great um, thought about, you know, 
what would happen, right, if, if you could, if you were, you know, the head of an HR organization or the head of a workforce planning um, entity, if you could know, really know your employees, not just their employee ID or their job role, but really understand what drives them, what motivates them. So this gets to Jennifer's point around really taking some of these powerful technologies like analytics, um, layering that on top of of, of these um, social and knowledge networks and being able to really pinpoint in on what a person is driven by, what their strengths and gifts are, and what innately drives them to um, want to wake up in the morning and do that job or um, tackle that problem in their project. And I, and I think that's, that's kind of a, another really key point around searching and being able to understand how to connect that at the end of the day, you know, you could know someone's email address and, and easily send them a note and say hi. Um, but um, being able to know where they're from, um, some background on them, things that uh, they like drinking and, and having as part of their coffee of the day, um, you know, those are all things that, you know, innately are part of who they are. And layer upon layer, though, that forms the multidimensional view of a person that really does matter when it comes to understanding the person's um, contribution in the context of what they are saying. Um, so that makes it possible for you to consume it and use it in the way that you need. So I, I think that certainly that layering of data and understanding a person, you know, piecing that together with all these data points is quite key as well in these knowledge networks. Thank you. Thank you, Cynthia. Very interesting point, combining the knowledge with the people who have the knowledge, who are they, what motivates them, and context and perspective. Very important. I want to shift gears a little bit here. Michael Gretzko, I'm looking at the notes you sent me before the show, and I'd like to talk about documents. We've been referencing Rolodexes and index cards and where knowledge was originally, we'll say, stored and shared if you had access to those documents. Michael, I'm, I'm going to read a couple of notes here and then have you expand it. You say, the pace of change in business and technology has made it such that a document can very quickly become expired. And you say the concept of a static body of knowledge that must be shared must be blown up and thought about differently. What do we do with old knowledge, with old white papers and Excel spreadsheets and, and reports and forms and that are part of the lore, perhaps, of a company or somebody's knowledge history? Michael, what do we do? Talk to me about what are we blowing up and how are we going forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to be too provocative here and, and get too ahead of myself, but you know, I think we've got to start to ignore it, frankly, and, uh-huh. and, and help people move on, right, and, and move forward. And I, you know, I think there we spend a lot of our organizational energy trying to figure out how to organize this information and make it accessible. But I would harbor a guess that very few people are accessing that information, and even fewer are actually using it and finding it useful. Um, look, there, there's some documents which need to be accessed, and there's laws and regulations that require us to be able to access that stuff, and there's information that, you know, such as vision statements, that they're important and should be written down and need to be accessible, and you need to make that easy. But how do we make sure that people are looking at the right stuff? And, you know, part of this is because, uh, you know, there, there's so much documentation being created that the ability to find that valuable document you're looking for has gotten, you know, I think harder and harder. Um, I think another sort of interesting dynamic here is um, how do we start to manage, you know, one of the things that, that we study quite a bit is the nature of the workforce. And the workforce is shifting. The demographics are shifting. And we're increasingly seeing workforces that are comprised not only just of employees that work for an organization, but 
contractors or contingent workers, experts brought in from the outside? And how do you start to manage that part of the knowledge network, knowledge that may not be owned by the organization, is owned by an individual that's only loosely associated with the organization, but which may be contributing very critical knowledge to, to use your words, you know, the lore of the company and that the the fundamental critical knowledge that that organization has run upon. Are those documents the organizations? In the past, there would be agreements that would guide that documentation. When the documentation is less important or when it quickly expires and the individual's contribution is more important, how do you make sure you continue to have access to that individual's expertise where it's a critical input into that organization's you know, business strategy and operations? And I think that's a question that some progressive organizations are starting to tackle, and I'm not sure there are any easy answers yet on that one. Thank you. Jennifer Engelhardt at IBM, thoughts on what Michael just shared? You know, it's interesting. He talked a bit about the demographic shift, and I'll just share a quick anecdote. There was this, um, there was this philanthropy that did this experiment, and they distributed these, um, these tablets to these children in uh, these poor, poor villages in Africa. And uh, they put some preloaded e-learning software on there, wanted to see if the kids would be able to teach themselves English using these preloaded apps. So within a week, not only had they started to teach themselves English, but they had started to teach the other kids, the other folks in the village English. And within five months, they had hacked the Android software, they had activated the camera, they had customized their their mm. desktop, and they um, they were using it, um, it, it just in all kinds of innovative ways that you would never expect. So. When we talk about the shifting demographics, you know, the, everyone talks about the millennial, but imagine what's going to happen when, when learning, and Cynthia, I'd love to hear your comments on this given, given your role, when learning truly reaches every corner of the world, regardless of country, of, of, of class, of, of background, and what a, a huge shift it will be and what our collective global mindshare will be when we can, when we can really reach the far corners of the world and, and have everyone join in, this, in these huge knowledge networks that are forming, so I think there's really going to be a fundamental shift, and it, it will be fascinating to watch what happens in the HCM space as we start to harness the, these knowledge networks that will that will that will sprout and will be nurtured throughout the world, and what that will bring to our organizations. Thank you, Jennifer. Cynthia, you've been summoned. What do you think? I have been. Thanks. Um, thanks, Jennifer. No, you know what? That that is as as a as a passionate learning practitioner. This this piece of what it means um, to have the power and the um, the the meaning behind what it, what it will mean as knowledge networks continue to take hold and continue to converge with the technology and the data and the quintillion bytes of data that we're creating um, uh, it, on, a, on an almost daily basis is, is what's so exciting from a learning perspective. And again, not just for uh, obviously what this means for organizations and for individual um, employees and workers who want to be more productive, but certainly on a social level. And actually, if you put everyone on that 
same plane. Again, go back to what drives a person, whether that be a, um, you know, a very young digital native in, um, in Latin America or, you know, a, a burgeoning career person in New York City. There is, there is something innate um, that is part of every human to want to better themselves and want to do something that means something to them. And, and I think that's why I'm so passionate about learning, because I think this is a space where, where I think learning um, organizations and HR organizations have this new role to help broker to help broker these networks, to help enable these environments and make it possible for people to be the best they can be in that environment. And, and I think, um, if you can't hear it already in my voice, I'm, I'm just so extremely excited about the potential and the new role, again, that I think learning organizations and HR organizations have in this world to really provide um, and help nurture that environment because um, I, I, I don't think anyone really gets their arms around the ocean. That never happens. What you can do is provide some navigation um, every now and then, provide a life raft. And, but otherwise, um, you know, every individual out there is a smart and a surviving person, and they are all able to find their way. And, and I think that's what's so exciting, again, about watching this unfold in front of us. And it certainly is. And I have a little bit of knowledge to share with all three of you. I was recently told as part of my knowledge network here at SAP, I learned that the millennial generation is now being called, perhaps they're calling themselves, the yawn generation. Y-A-W-N. Anybody else hear that? Do you know why? Because they're looking for wholesome lifestyles. They're giving up that rock and roll drugs and you know what, the word, the three letter word that ends with X in there. And they're playing shuffleboard and they're knitting and they're staying home at night and doing handicrafts. I know, I know. Taylor Swift, Mark Zuckerberg, look it up. The 20 somethings, early 30 somethings are changing their lifestyle needs. So millennials are not who we thought they were or maybe they're not who they thought they were. Uh, Michael, do you want to wrap up this topic since you introduced it and then I'm going to move on to some notes? From Jennifer? No, I mean, I, I think I'll just say, look, I think there's a lot of unopened, a lot of unanswered questions on this that, that we've got to answer. I think it's sort of the challenge that organizations will face, especially as we see this changing demographics. I'm personally excited to see who sort of picks up the ball and runs with the innovation and sort of sets the pace for everyone else. Okay, Jennifer Engelhart, you're up. I'm looking at your notes and something really pops out at me down at the end of the notes you sent me. You say serious gaming is one of the most exciting innovations in the workforce enablement space. Why don't you talk to me a little bit about your perspective and your knowledge on this. How is this impacting knowledge networks? Serious Games is one of the most exciting things that I, that I think is happening now in the learning space. And speaking of millennials, people, you know, our, our traditional model has been, as it relates to, to training, and I'm speaking um, in an ERP implementation context now, so... Imagine you have a big ERP project. What traditionally happens is you build all of this content that quickly becomes shelfware, to Mike's point before. And, and then as soon as we get the uh, – so the training organization is, is teed up. They have to get – you know, train the 1,000 users before such and such date. And then, uh, you know, the, the teams roll off and move on to the next thing right around go live when the users are just starting to get their sea legs. And then meantime, on the other side, after go live – We've got our other support networks that start to come into play that are much more loosely formed. So we have our help desk that's trying to figure out what the training folks taught them. And then we've got users trying to figure out 
okay, how do I process this particular transaction? And so there's this big disconnect. The training team has, you know, checked the box and moved on to the next thing, whereas the help desk and the users are on the other side trying to figure out what they learned pre-go-live and trying to synthesize that into making, you know, um, you know, performing their jobs correctly and making better informed business decisions. So that, that whole approach to learning is, is shifting dramatically. We're, lo- we're, lo- we're looking at dashboards that can tell us with a, a very high level of precision where we have uh, performance gaps by geography, by, um, by transaction, by functional area, by, uh, by job role. And using dashboards that can pull in data from multiple sources, let's say, um, uh, hits to learning objects on a, on a, on a learning management system or um, some basic analysis of call help desk patterns to the help desk or skills assessments or qualitative data from a, from a first-line manager or a group of super, super users. So it's really about shifting the way that we think to just improving transactional processes to really sharing best practices. So gaming is a great way for us to get users engaged and excited about, um, about a new project or a new um, initiative that's being implemented. I'll tell you a quick story. We did a, um, a serious game for a, a government agency in, in, uh, in Southeast Asia, and basically it allowed, it was around HCM, so it basically allowed employees to um, use an avatar, which actually was an origami figure, as they completed different quests, as they modeled different career paths for, them, for, for themselves. And as they completed these different quests, it helped define what the best career path would be for them, what different um, actions they should take, including internships and training and, and different activities. And as they completed these quests, that origami figure would morph into a different figure. And at the end, they, would, they allowed uh, people to connect who all had the same origami figure. They allowed them to connect socially, and they also had a dashboard to help them track how they were progressing against their career path um, as part of the serious game as well. So it's a really a, a huge shift in the learning space from the traditional model that we had before to something that's much more personalized, much shorter targeted micro-learning events, all of which are informed by analytics through these global user adoption dashboards. Interesting. And, Jennifer, we can't finish the show. Well, we're going to move into the predictions crystal ball round in just a minute, but we can't finish this topic without talking about IBM Watson. What's Watson up to these days? Any reports? Watson is, I'll speak about Watson as, as it relates to learning, and there's a wonderful YouTube mm-hmm. video out there on the future of learning powered by Watson. It's, if you can imagine, I've got um, a first grader and a third grader, and, you know, if, when I think about how my son learns versus my daughter, you know, my son comes home from school and wants to play. My daughter comes home and wants to get her homework done right away. So when we look at the different attributes of each learner, when do they learn best? How do they learn best? Is it one-on-one or is it in a group setting? If we, if we look at all the different attributes of, of learners across the board, what Watson is going to bring is really a personalized approach to learning. So what is the best regimen for a child to gain the most knowledge within the school year? Uh, how should that, that student's um, curriculum be structured? How should their day be structured? Do they need to have recess early in the morning? Now, there are, of course, there are logistical factors that will, that will be challenging, but the, the the personalization of learning, just like we talked earlier, about the personalization of medicine, those are really the big trends that Watson is going to help bring. 
Thank you very much. You know what? We have seven minutes left till the close of the show, and I'm going to segue this, right? Well, you know what? Cynthia G., any comments on what Jennifer said? And, Michael, I give you each about 30 seconds of response before we go into Crystal Ball. Cynthia, any comments on serious gaming on IBM Watson? Yeah, look, I, I think uh, just to echo Jennifer's thoughts and not repeat too much, the, this, this personalization piece, again, goes straight to the heart of what, individuals are, are, are craving for, again, both in their personal life as well in their work life. And that is to be um, catered for in terms of the experience that they are after. And we know that from a learning perspective that, for example, when learners, when students, when individuals um, are um, provided you know, learning experiences, not content, not classroom training, but experiences that go straight to the heart of what motivates them, how they learn, where they're best um, position to learn is is really a, a huge secret to unlock within um, an individual to help them become um, better at what they do, um, both in their job and in their um, personal lives. Thank you. Michael Gretzko, 30 seconds on response to Jennifer, and then we will go back to Cynthia for predictions. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, just one comment. You know, I, I think this, this comment that I started with around the, the Rumi quote, which is, you know, how do we get folks to contribute and align their incentives? I think you know, the, the example of gamification and using games and rewards to do that is a, is a really powerful method, something that we Deloitte is, have pioneered as an organization, and it's working really well. So I, I think there's, there's definitely an opportunity to continue to leverage that to tackle at least that problem, that part of the problem set around knowledge networks. Thank you. Time for crystal ball predictions round. I'm going to give you each one minute, and if we have anything left over, I'll come up with a bonus question. Cynthia G., partner in the Global Business Services Consulting Practice at IBM. Cynthia, can you look ahead to the year 2020, my favorite year? You know that. Or how far in the future, what would be different if we met again in our conversation about Knowledge Network? Cynthia G., predictions, one minute, go. Okay, look, I, I use my daughter a lot for questions like these, and my daughter is truly of the digital native generation. She might even predate the yawn generation. So here's what I think. By the time she enters the workforce, um, and now I'll have to you know, project this out to about 15, 20 years from now, um, if she takes a gap year or not, it might also influence that. <laughs> um, I would love to believe that this topic, this very thing we're talking about, I think will be extremely irrelevant. Um, I, and I think that because... You know, in the next, uh, certainly before 20 years from now, I, organizations will absolutely be self-forming. And I'm not just talking about project teams and um, specific initiatives. I'm talking about entire organizations as we know them will become self-forming in order to achieve a purpose, a shared common purpose. Individuals will join that mission, and they will bring their knowledge, their insight and creativity that they have. And that currency about them, that expertise that represents who they are, will be known because of the analytics and the understanding about them. Um, these things exist today, actually, believe it or not. I, I mentioned cloud earlier, and cloud is actually a system of, uh, that, of measuring a person's um, presence in the social media space. I don't know how many of you know your clout score, but you should go check it out. Um, so I think that those kinds of measures and those, that ability to layer um, dimensions about what a person knows and does and motivates them are things that I think will drive the future of how organizations form and how work gets done. And, and I know that from an IBM perspective, that's exactly what we're researching and certainly helping clients to explore today through technologies like Watson. 
Jackson, um, and, and big data and analytics. Thank you, Cynthia G. Let's turn to Michael Gretzko at Deloitte. Michael, how far in the prediction future can you go for knowledge networks? Relevant, irrelevant, what do you see? One minute, go. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, when, when we look ahead, you know, I'll use my children who are two years old, you know, 20 years from now when they're in the workforce. I think, you know, what we just heard is, is right. I, I, I can't imagine that anything we're talking about is relevant. In fact, I think about 90% of what I talk about day in and day out probably isn't relevant. Uh, 20 years from now, you know, for, for me, it's, it's, how do we in the shorter term? So let's, let's take the next, you know, two to five years, prepare for that inevitability of this vast open world where things look totally different. And, you know, I, I sure, I think one of my predictions a bit earlier in the program around organizations creating different organizing entities within the organizations as we know them today. And it gets this idea of self-forming teams. I, I love that, self-forming organizations, where, you know, I, I really think we're going to start to see that. We're going to start to see, you know, sort of the next generation affinity groups within organizations that an organization will put a particularly difficult business challenge out to its employee base and to its suppliers and its third-party relationships and say, please solve and I think we're going to see teams come together and organizations come together, forming you know multifunctional teams based on people's expertise and going after those problems. And organizations doing a better job making that be informal, but finding ways to reward that behavior and connect the outputs of that work um, to the the day to day management of the organization and to the execution you know with their customers and in their markets. And I think you know what you know for those of us that sort of operate in this space, there's a need for us to help organizations get there as quickly as possible so that they can respond to the inevitability of what's coming. Thank you, Jennifer Engelhart. I saved you well. you got less than a minute. Let's do a 35-second prediction. I know you're ready. Go. So what's really exciting about this space right now is that historically there really hasn't been a technology platform for us to share best practices and inform these knowledge networks. Now we have tools like Uline, Jam, Yammer, and Chatter, so it's really, this is a really exciting time to be in this space. A couple quick predictions. One is that data is going to continue to be the powerhouse that will make knowledge networks relevant and meaningful and make people come. The user experience is what will make people stay. So I'll end with a quote from, one of, from our senior vice president in GBS. She said, the last best experience that anyone has anywhere becomes the minimum expectation for the experience they want everywhere. So these knowledge networks are going to be about the data that makes it relevant and the experience it provides. And the ones that can weave those together the best way, those will be the winners. There you go. We're looking for winners. Thank you so much, Cynthia G. and Jennifer Engelhart from IBM, Michael Gretzko at Deloitte. Thank you to Brad and the Business Channel team at World Talk Radio. Shout out again to Becky Weber and Wilson Zhu at SAP and uh, somebody at Productivity. Uh, we had a tweeter here at Productivity Booster at Productivity T.O.P. Thanks for tweeting and Deloitte SAP as well. I'll be back tomorrow morning, 11 a.m. Eastern on Coffee Break with Game Changers. Hot Topic, Authentication as Part 3 of our Data security in the age of credit card breaches. There you go. We're going to talk about what kind of security I have, I am, I think, I do, I be. Two-part authentication, three-part. you got to listen and learn. It's for everybody, whether you're in the security business, the data business, or you're just a consumer, you want to be secure. Bonnie D. Graham signing off, and here is my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Transforming Your Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP. 
The best-run business is run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again on Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week. We'll be right back. 